Chapter Five of the Biography of a Prairie Girl by Eleanor Gates. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Misfit Scholar. It was only a little way to the schoolhouse in the winter time because the big brothers could cross the chain of sloughs to it on their skates, but in the autumn, before the ice was thick, the path led snake-like beside the eastern border of the water, just skirting the frill of green bulrushes and tall marsh grass, and it was a long distance. The schoolhouse stood in a wide glade that was the favorite grazing spot of a band of antelope. It was narrow and unpainted, with two windows on each side and a door in one end. And from its roof, which was not too high for a game of anti-over, protruded a joint of rusty stovepipe. During the spring and summer the building stood empty, with the whole sloping green placed itself and the pronghorns, and in every high wind it toppled over, with its pipe pointing to the east, until it was pried into place again. But after the school took up in the fall, the glade rang with the laughter and shouts of the scholars, and the antelope crossed Vermilion and traveled to the rugged country further west, where, when the snow fell and hid the dried grasses, they could browse off the bushes, and the schoolhouse did not topple any more, for its steep coal bins, which were built against the wall by the door, were full to the brim. Often on warm summer afternoons, the little girl rode down to the glade beyond the sloughs, and, sitting on her horse quietly, induced a tawny doe and her twin kids to approach by exciting their curiosity with her bright red flannel petticoat. But if she took the herd along, she did not dare display her skirt, for Napoleon did not like it and had, on one occasion, viciously gored the Indian pony in the ribs when the little girl was busy coaxing the deer. After a windstorm, she liked to climb from her pony to the overturned schoolhouse and walk about on it. Once she slipped on a window pane when she was peering in and fell through, and would have had to remain there a long time, for the door was locked if she had not thought to pull the joint of the stovepipe out of the roof and crawl through the hole to freedom. But she had never been near the building when the teacher was in charge. She did not want to go to school, because she meant to learn her lessons at home the way her mother had, and her mother had been taught by her mother, and after that by a governess. The little girl had never talked the matter over at the farmhouse, however, for she never doubted that the governess, whoever that was, would come in all good time. So her surprise and grief were great when she heard one day that she was to learn her lessons from the lanky, yankton man who presided over the school, and along with the other little girls who lived near enough to attend. She held one cheerful argument after another with the eldest brother, declaring that she could read and study at home. But he said that a young one, nearly six years old, ought to know something more than stories, something about the world and arithmetic. Secretly, the little girl did not think it was any use going to school for she believed the teacher did not know much. She had even heard the biggest brother say so, and she knew that she knew a great deal. As soon as she could eat with a spoon, she had begun to hold the almanac up in front of her, and she had spoken her first word at fourteen months. It was man, and her mother often related how it happened. She was walking the little girl to sleep, she said, and singing, There was a little man, and he had a little gun, when there sounded a small voice from the cradle. Man, it said, and the little girl's mother, peeking over the side, saw two wide-open blue eyes. After that, when she was being rocked to sleep, the little girl always said, Man. Three months later, she had begun to talk in whole sentences. At three years, she had been able to make all her letters and read several words, having been taught secretly by the biggest brother. At four, she knew the youngest brother's reading lessons by heart, and could spell every word in the first reader. At this stage of her education, she put aside such baby things as Mother Goose rhymes, and was deeply interested in the doings of the Swiss family Robinson. 
Winter nights, she listened to an ever-increasing number of stories that were read aloud by her mother. And now she was occupied with Gulliver. But she did not know one of her multiplication tables, and the neighbor woman, for one, was greatly disgusted with her, and declared that she did not know whatever would become of the child. The morning the little girl started to school, with her second reader under one arm, it was so cold that her breath looked like puffs of white steam. Her mother thought she had better walk instead of ride, and bundled her up warmly in a big plaid shawl, her beaver cap, and her thick mittens. When she set off, she was accompanied by the youngest brother, who was going to be a visitor during the morning session. The dogs, with the exception of Luffy, who could not be found, had been chained up along the sunny side of the house to keep them from following her. And as they saw her disappearing across the reservation road, they jumped back and forth, pulling out their collars and howling dismally. The little girl did not look around at them. Her heart was heavy. All the unhappiness that had been visited upon her that autumn weighed it down. Every day before sunrise, she had had to get up and eat a raw carrot, because the neighbor woman had prescribed it as a cure for a certain livid spot that had made its appearance on the little girl's cheek, and had thought it to be a cancer. The little girl knew that the carrot-eating was useless, since the spot was only the mark of an unsuccessful attempt at tattooing, but she did not care to explain. Then the cowbird had been sent away, and as the last blow she had been told to go to school. There was no doubt in her mind that her misfortunes were due wholly to the fact that she had precisely thirteen freckles on her pink nose. She had never been able to count them because, when she had covered ten of the tiny brown spots with as many fingers, so much of her nose was hidden that she could count no further. But the biggest brother had assured her that she had them, and that was enough. She was very tired when they came inside the schoolhouse, and the youngest brother had to tug her along by the hand. Luffrey, who had come in sight over a hillock ahead of them when they were part way, trotted at her heels and looked wistfully at her as she half walked, half ran, complaining at every step. Now and then he jumped up and tried to lick her face sympathetically. But she would not let him, for she knew that he had warts on his muzzle that he had caught the summer before while teaching a toad. The schoolroom was full of smoke and noise when they entered. The scholars were laughing and talking as they crowded about the tall, round stove, and it was sending black, sooty breath into their faces from every crevice of its loosely hung doors. But shortly afterwards the noise was silenced by the teacher, who brought his hands together with a resounding clap. All the pupils in the room, except the little girl, had been to school to him the year before and knew what that signal meant. So she suddenly found herself the only one left standing in the middle of the floor, the girls having preempted the row of benches on the right and the boys that on the left. But she was not abashed, and her corkscrew curls danced on her shoulders as she looked about. "'Sit down! Sit down!' came in whispers from both sides. She took no notice of them, and the teacher, busily preparing the roll call at his table, did not hear. But soon a ripple of laughter from the school, and a voice from the stove interrupted his work and brought him scowling to his feet. The little girl was standing with one arm extended and one small forefinger pointing past him to the globe, which, for want of a better, was but a fat pumpkin ingeniously impaled on a stick, and peeled over part of its surface in such a manner that the five oceans were represented, while the portion yet unpeeled showed the rude outlines of the six continents. "'We've got lots of pumpkins bigger than that at our house,' she was saying, her face turned toward Frenchy, an upriver trapper who studied geography and English spelling between his rounds of the sloughs. Why, the cellar's full of them. The teacher rapped briskly on the table with his pencil to call her to order. Look here, he said a little crossly. You mustn't talk out like that. Sit down. No seat, she faltered, lowering her voice. He looked up and down at the girl's row, 
There were only four seats in it, and they were full. The boys' benches were not, but loath to lessen the terrors of a favorite punishment, he hesitated to put her there. "'Come up to the rostrum, then,' he said. The little girl walked slowly forward, and a flush stole up her throat and mounted to her temples. But when she was once seated, her sailor hat on one side and her second reader on the other, she felt less demeaned, for the rostrum commanded a view of the whole room, and from it she could see Luffrey fast asleep under the youngest brother's bench. The teacher went back to the roll call, and the pupils droned the time away till recess. Then the boys rummaged through their willow baskets for something to eat and went out to play prisoner's base. But the girls, the neighbor woman's daughter and the seven belonging to the Dutchman who lived at the Vermilion Forks, stayed in, gathered in a silent circle about the rostrum, fingered the big gold brooch that the little girl's mother had let her wear as a reward for attending, and looked her up and down from the scarlet bow on her hair to her fringed leggings. And she, never having seen the Dutchman's children before, forgot to be polite, and stared back at their denim dresses, pigtails, and wooden shoes. When school took up again, the Swede boy was told to put his sums on a bit of tar-papered wall near him, and a mixed class in reading lined up in front of the teacher's table. Soon, however, the room was again quiet. The Swede boy and the class sat down, and the whole school, made sleepy by the warmth from the stove, lounged on their benches and drowsed on their books, and even the little girl, sitting idly on the rostrum, nodded wearily. But right in the middle of a sentence, and just before the pupils were dismissed for noon, something so startling happened that the little girl's curls fairly stiffened in alarm. The teacher clapped his hands, and the children followed with a hurried banging of their books and slates, and instantly, before the little girl had time to think what it all meant, the scholars, with one accord, began to roar at the top of their lungs. "'Scotland's burning! Scotland's burning!' they cried, rapping their knuckles upon their desks in the rhythm of the galloping horses. "'More water! More water!' fire 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 more water more water the little girl straightened herself and a gray light crept up to where the flush had been so that every freckle of the hateful thirteen stood out clearly near her the teacher was standing with his feet planted wide apart and his eyes raised to the ceiling and before him shouting and pounding and staring with crimson faces into his were the pupils fire 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 they yelled it brought back to the little girl that terrible moment when the farmhouse, with a dripping pan full of hog fat flaming in the oven, was threatened with destruction. "'Scotland's burning! Scotland's burning!' sounded the warning again. No one moved, but not knowing just how near Scotland might be, and fearful for her safety with danger so imminent, she did not wait longer. Clutching her hat and book, with a bound she cleared the distance of the youngest brother, and with a stifled cry leaped into his arms. But in her excitement she had forgotten Luffrey, lying asleep under the bench, and had jumped squarely upon one soft, outstretched paw. The dog sprang up with a howl of pain, and the school stopped its singing, and the angry teacher left the rostrum and advanced toward the little girl. The next moment he dragged the dog from under the bench by the scruff of his neck and hurled him out of the door. The next he shook an admonishing finger in the very face of the thirteen unlucky freckles. Late that afternoon, the eldest brother paddled across the sloughs in the bull boat and had a talk with the teacher. The teacher lived in the Irishman's shack, which was made of cottonwood logs laid one upon another and covered with a roof of sticks and dirt, and batched himself through the term, because the little girl's mother had refused to board him. So, when the eldest brother had finished his visit and rode back, he recited such an ill-natured version of that day's happenings at the schoolhouse that the family, until then divided by the contradictory stories of the youngest brother and the little girl, united in heaping reproaches upon her. Next morning she again traveled the winding path that skirted the marsh grass and bulrushes, this time on the pinto. Luffrey, who had been tied up at breakfast, but had mysteriously slipped his collar, followed as before. 
When she arrived within a short distance of the schoolhouse, she climbed down, and without taking any notice of the giggling, waiting crowd by the doorway, carefully picketed the mare out of reach of the other ponies. Then she pulled off the bridle, put it beside the picket pin, and after bidding Luffrey watch beside it, went in quietly to take her seat. She had not unblanketed her horse, because, under the soft sheepskin saddle and well out of sight, was tucked one of her mother's latest magazines that had pictures scattered through it. When school was called, she was not allowed to keep the seat on the rostrum. One of the Dutchman's seven being absent, she was told to share the rear bench with the neighbor woman's daughter, and spent a happy hour in the seclusion of the high seat, watching Frenchie, who had no slate, write his spelling on the smooth, round stove, and smiling at the Swede boy when he looked shyly across at her. Then she heard someone call her name. It was the teacher. "'Come forward to the chart,' he said, and his voice seemed to shake the floor. She took up her second reader edged herself off her seat, and stood beside it, her eyes fixed questioningly upon him. "'Come forward to the chart, I say,' he said again. "'Can't you hear?' "'Yes,' answered the little girl, starting up the room, but she walked so slowly that, when she came near his table, he put out one lean hand, grabbed her by the arm, and hurried her. She resented his touch by twisting about until she was free. Then she took her place in front of the chart, feeling as if every eye in the room were looking up and down the row of blue crockery buttons on the back of her apron. The teacher began to turn forward sheet after sheet of the chart, until the first page was before him. It depicted a figure in a silk hat, long coat, and light trousers, promenading with a cane in his hand and a dog at his heels. Underneath were two lines of simple words and two inquiring sentences. The teacher picked up a long cottonwood stick and pointed at first the man and then the dog. "'What is that?' he said. "'A man,' answered the little girl. "'And that?' "'A dog.' "'Now read after me,' he went on, indicating a word. "'M, a, n, man.' She paused a moment, her lips pressed tightly together. "'Read, read, read,' commanded the teacher, walking the chart with a pointer. "'M, a, n, man,' repeated the little girl, her eyes on his face. "'Don't look at me,' he scolded. "'Look at the chart.' "'I don't have to,' said the little girl, earnestly. "'I—I—' I... "'Something unpleasant would certainly have happened at that moment, "'had not Frenchy, deep in his geography lesson, "'piped up at the teacher from the rear of the room. "'T-A-N-G-A-N-Y-I-K-A,' he spelled, "'snapping his fingers and waving his arm. "'What is that?' "'For a moment the teacher was silent, scowling at the little girl.' Then he came back to the chart with another whack of the pointer. "'Call it Moses!' he growled. "'Moses!' repeated Frenchy, resignedly, but with a shake of his head over the intricacies of the English language. The little girl had half-twisted around to look at a Dutch child, and the teacher, angry because he had neglected to look over the geography lesson, jerked her into place again by her sleep. "'Now you read,' he said. "'Look at the end of my pointer and read.' "'I can read them words without looking at em, she protested, pointing at an inquiring line, "'cause I can read everything in this.' And she held up the second reader. "'Huh!' grunted the teacher, taking the book from her and tossing it upon the table. "'Have you ever been to school before?' "'No,' answered the little girl. "'Then you'll start right in where everybody else does,' he said. "'Read this line. Do you see a man?' "'Do you see a man?' she repeated, still watching him. "'Look at the chart and read it!' he commanded furiously. An unfriendly light shone in the little girl's eyes. She stepped back and summoned all her pride to resent the indignity that he was putting upon her before the whole school. "'I don't want to read that baby talk,' she cried. "'And, and, I won't. 
and I'm going home to my mother. The teacher swallowed in his wrath like a tall cottonwood. You don't, eh? You won't, eh? He bellowed, and stooping down, plucked the little girl by the ear. This time it was the Swede boy who interrupted the course of events in front. He leaned forward and whispered something in the ear of the boy ahead, and then, with an inarticulate shout, threw himself upon the boy and began to maul him. Instantly the teacher, yearning to use his hands upon someone, descended upon them and wrested them apart. But they clinched again, and, continuing to fight, managed so to misdirect their kicks that they reached, not each other, but his lanky, interfering person. And while the battle raged, the little girl fled out of the schoolhouse, toward the pinto, and pulled up the picket pin. The teacher did not see her go, but in retreating from an unusually vicious blow of the Swede boy's fist, caught sight of her just as she was leading her horse to an ant hill to mount. With a hoarse call for her to return, he started after her, bearing his train of the two boys, who, still struggling, impeded his progress. He shook them off to the doorstep and broke into a run. The little girl was vainly striving to climb to the pinto's back, but she was so frightened that each time she made a jump for the saddle, she came short of it and fell back. And seeing the teacher coming, her efforts were more ineffectual than ever. But when he was scarcely a rod away, and when escape seemed impossible, a new figure joined in the affair. Luffrey had been lying quietly beside the picket pin until the little girl ran out, when he got up ready to follow and joyfully leaped about the mare. Then he saw the teacher advancing, and remembered the rough handling of the day before. So the Yankton man came close, swinging his arms about like the fans of the Dutchman's windmill. The dog came forward to meet him, his hair on end, his eyes shifting treacherously, his teeth showing in an ugly white seam, all the wolf blood in him roused. The teacher halted when he saw him, and called back to the scholars, now crowding around the doorway. "'Bring my pointer!' he cried. Not a pupil moved. The teacher, noting that no one was obeying his order, and not daring to go forward unarmed, ran back at the top of his speed for the stick. But he was too late, for by the time he had gained the schoolhouse and grabbed both the pointer and the stove poker, the little girl had scrambled upon her pinto and galloped off toward the farmhouse. The teacher did not give chase but sputtering revenge under his breath called the school to order. Then, not forgetting what severity is due insubordination where the sons of salary-supplying fathers are concerned, he gave the boys who had fought, but who were now docile and smiling, a mighty tongue-lashing. When the little girl was beyond hailing distance or possibility of capture, she brought the pinto to a standstill and looked back. Once she opened her lips as if to say something, but closed them again, and after waiting until the scholars had all gone in, rode on. She did not go home. Instead, when she came in sight of the reservation road, she turned east and cantered across the prairie, until only the top of the farmhouse was visible to her as she sat upon her horse. Then she dismounted, tethered the pinto, made Luffrey lie down, and having taken the magazine from under the saddle blankets, curled against the dog. She was still trembling, her throat ached with unspoken anger, and underneath her apron her heart bounded so that the checks moved in regular time. But soon she wiped her blurred eyes and turned to the pictures in the magazine. They began at the red-brown one of a storm-tossed ship on a rocky coast, and, following were drawings of queer boxes and chairs, and yet more strange, a herd of grazing cattle, with a board fence around it. There was also a funny picture of a ragged boy and a stylish little girl who wore a round hat and a polonaise. And lastly, there was shown a beautiful young woman standing by a table in a long, loose robe, very much like the army chaplain's. It was over this picture that the little girl bent longest, and she read, not without some tedious spelling, the words that were printed beneath it. Mary, in cap and gown, was so bright and dainty a vision that the professor wished that more young ladies of gentle birth might attend the college. 
college it was not a new word to the little girl for she had heard the colonel tell her mother that he was going to send his son to college but she now knew that girls go as well as boys and she saw by the picture that they wore beautiful flowing robes and square caps it was a cap that especially attracted her for it rested becomingly upon a mass of wavy hair she wished that the curls which had to be coaxed into shape every morning with a warm stove lifter and a wet brush would hang in ripples like the young woman's so that she could wear one oh ain't it sweet she said aloud getting up on her knees beside luffrey and holding out the book at arm's length and then with the mortar-board as her inspiration there flashed into her brain a wonderful thought that was to grow through the coming years and her lips framed a splendid purpose heard by no mortal ears save those of the shivering hound and the cropping pony that time was gloriously to fulfil and maybe she added happily i'll have monia and my hair'll come in just as curly she sprang to her feet fired with her new ambition and undid the pony and remembering that it would be well to reach the farmhouse before the family could hear the second tale of trouble at the school she hastily coiled the picket rope mounted hid the magazine under the saddle blankets and with the dog running stiffly in her wake rode homeward when she reached the barn she did not even wait to fasten the pinto in her stall but taking the magazine raced toward the kitchen as she halted breathlessly in its open door however she was sorry she had not come in quietly by way of her bedroom window and waited until she was sure that her mother was alone but she found herself in the presence not only of the big brothers but of him whose authority she had so lately flouted the suddenness of the discovery drove the words she meant to say in her own behalf from her brain but five pairs of eyes were upon her and retreat was impossible so she strove mutely to win any possible sympathy by covering with one unsteady hand the ear that had been pulled no one spoke for a moment and in that brief space of time the little girl divined as she saw each face that but one in the group before her was eager to see her punished and that one was the teacher in the eyes of the eldest brother there was no disapproval only a lurking smile the biggest was openly beaming with satisfaction the youngest had taken his attitude as usual from the eldest and her mother's look was sadly kind but the teacher was hostile from brow to boot it was the eldest brother who first broke the silence he took his pipe from his mouth knocked out the ashes against his bench, and addressed the little girl. "'So you went on the warpath today,' he said. She made no answer, but moved toward her mother. "'This youngster,' he went on, wheeling around on the teacher, "'is well up in the chart pages and can read pretty good in most books. "'So I guess,' he drawled it out sneeringly, "'as long as you ain't got any classes that exactly fit her, "'she'd better lie fallow for a while.' The little girl shot a proud glance at the Yankton man as she heard the eldest brother's praise, and emboldened spoke up for herself. "'I can read all the charts,' she declared, "'and I can read everything in the first reader. "'And I can spell man.' She put the hand that she had been holding over her ear on a level with her knee, when I was so high. The teacher snorted. "'You know your business,' he said to the eldest brother. "'Guess we do,' chimed in the biggest, grinning. "'No use bothering her with it.' A, B, A, B, when she can read the things she does. The teacher stood up, ready to go. And I was about to remark, continued the biggest, banteringly, that she's got a lot of mighty nice stories that she's read and done with. If you'd like to borrow one, once in a while, to pass an evening with, you might find them mighty educatin'. Thank you, answered the teacher, but like as not you'll need them all to finish up her education on. I guess maybe you'll be sending her off to Sioux Falls in a year or so to kind of polish her off. The sarcasm in the voice stung the biggest brother. Well, he said, she could polish off right here on these plains and have a lot more in her noodle in a year or two than some people I know. 
This boast of her favorite again brought the little girl's courage up. I don't want to go to the city school, she declared, because they don't wear caps there. The teacher was tramping out with no backward look or good-bye word, and he did not want to hear more. So it was the eldest brother who answered her. If you don't go here and you don't go to Sioux Falls, he said, I'd like to know where you'll learn anything. Ma ain't got no time to be your governess. I don't want no governess, either, she replied. I know what I'm going to do. She brought forth the magazine, which she had been holding behind her back with one hand, and opening it at the drawing of the young woman in cap and gown, laid it on the biggest brother's knee. Then she went up to her mother, her face barely shining through the dust and tear marks on it. Her mother put out her arms and gently drew the little girl to her. In her mind had come the picture of herself in spotless pinafore, bending with her governess over her English books. And beside that picture, the little girl, sunburned, soiled, and poorly shod, made a sharp contrast. "'What are you going to do, pet lamb?' she asked. "'I'm going to cut enough carpet rags this winter to last you a whole year,' said the little girl, "'cause next summer you won't have me any more. I'm—I'm I'm going to college.' The teacher— Jogging out of the barnyard to the ash lane, heard a hearty roll of bassoes from the kitchen, and did not doubt but that he was its target. He reined in his horse at the bare flower beds and glowered back at the door. Then with a mutter, ungrammatical but eloquent, he spurred on toward the lonely, supperless shack by the slough. End of The Misfit Scholar <laughs>